I also want to encourage you to find a Bible and turn to Psalm chapter 27 this morning. Psalm chapter 27. We're continuing our series of a summer in the Psalms. It's been a joy this morning to um, experience something that Scripture actually commands of us. That is to sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And so what a great joy it is to have the psalms set to music, uh, given to us in a way that remind us and encourage us uh, from the Word of God. And you will see, I'm sure, not just with the psalm that was just sung, but in other songs that were sung this morning, God's Word from Psalm 27 coming through. The Psalms we have said as we've begun this process of studying through them each summer are the inspiration for a number of songs and spiritual songs. And so we are grateful for God's word that we can sing to one another, encourage one another's hearts as we walk through this life. Well, I hope by now you found Psalm chapter 27, and I'd like for you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Psalm 27 of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord. And lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this exhortation of your servant David, that we wait for you. Father, in these moments, we call upon you and ask that you would visit us by your Spirit. 
Heavenly Father, we pray that you would come and apply this word spoken and preached to the hearts and lives of each individual here. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Increasingly, it's becoming more and more difficult to live courageously as a Christian. There was a day that even I am old enough to remember when you could gain social capital by being a Christian. What I mean by that as an example is if you were a member of the First Baptist Church of so-and-so town, you might sell more cars at the car dealership. Uh, you might be held in a higher esteem among the club of gentlemen or the ladies' society. You might be known as a more upstanding citizen in your town if you were a Christian. I believe the days of, of gaining social capital because of proclaiming yourself to be a Christian have gone. And it seems more likely that you will face opposition or work uphill in your job or in the society of the company you keep for holding convictionally and courageously to the Christian faith. Going public for Jesus costs you something that it may not have even a generation ago. It seems that there are enemies around us on every side. So how are we to live with courage? How are we to stand in the face of mounting opposition of the God that we serve? I believe this psalm goes a long way in helping us address and answer that question. How can we be courageous Christians. You see, the key to that courage is to have a confident faith in God. And this psalm teaches us, I believe, at least three things about having that kind of confident faith. First of all, we see that confident faith recognizes its foundation. Confident faith recognizes its foundation. There's every reason to believe that as David is penning this psalm, that he has present enemies that are distressing him, present adversaries that would do him in. And he needs courage to face the encroaching enemies. And the first thing he does is recognize the foundation of his faith. He remembers and he rehearses the reasons why he can be confident. He says in verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Right out of the gate in David's prayer, he recognizes that the Lord, and not David's own might or David's own strength, is the foundation of any confidence that he can have. He establishes, as some people have called it, the threefold strand that cannot be easily broken. The Lord is my light, my salvation, and my refuge, my stronghold. And so we consider not only uh, the light or the salvation or the refuge, but all of this together, and the fact that David says, the Lord is my light. You see, the confidence that he begins with is a personal confidence in God. He says, the Lord is my light. John would later write in the New Testament, in God there is no darkness at all. It's interesting to note that this is the only place in the Old Testament where the Lord is referred to as light itself. There are places where in the Old Testament it will say God shines forth his light 
or you, uh, he is approached in ineffable light, but this says the Lord is my light. In the New Testament, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And in John's gospel at the very beginning, the scripture says that Jesus came into the world. He is the light and the darkness has not overcome it. You see, the quality of light is that it overpowers and it overcomes all darkness. There is no darkness over which the light does not ultimately get the victory. And so David can say with confidence that God is his light. But secondly, he says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. I think these things mean essentially the same thing. They pertain to the work of God, giving us relief and victory over evil. And we should note that when it comes to our faith in God, salvation naturally follows illumination. We need the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit to shine light into our hearts and give us a picture, a glimpse of who God is for us to truly receive and be saved. This is the way Paul speaks of it in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 6. He says that God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That we would put our faith in Jesus requires God's illumination. The same God who spoke light out of darkness at creation shines his light into our hearts and saves us. Then thirdly, David says, the Lord is my ma'oz in the Hebrew, the stronghold of my life, the refuge of David's life. God is the place where David can run for shelter in the midst of the battle, for shelter in the midst of the storm. How many of you were ready to run for shelter on Monday when it was raining cats? I don't know that I've ever seen in my life it rain as hard as it rained on Monday. The thunder and the lightning, it was a storm for sure. The Lord is a refuge. He is the place where we can go to find shelter and deliverance. We can turn to him confidently. Like the scripture says in Proverbs 18 and verse 10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are protected. So a confident faith begins with recognizing the foundation is the Lord. Paul summarizes this idea in Romans chapter 8, when he asks the question, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's kind of what David's getting at. You know, if the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? If the Lord is the refuge of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? But David isn't done rehearsing the reasons for his confident faith in verse 1. He continues in verses 2 and 3 where he fastens himself, as it were, to God. Fastens himself to God's past victories that he has won over his enemies. So look in verse 2 and verse 3 where we read that when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it's they who will stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. And though war arise against me, even then shall I be confident. In the KJV, it says, in this I will be confident. We'll get to why I picked the NKJV in just a moment. The picture that I have that comes to mind when I read these verses of Scripture is 
uh, kind of like you're in an orchard and there are trees lining you on either side of a path that walks down the middle of two rows of trees. Okay, you picturing that in your mind? Now for me, I imagine that there are dogs, vicious dogs that are tied to those trees on 20 foot ropes. And I'm walking 25 feet away from them down a path. And I'm imagining these evildoers, these dogs around me ready to eat my flesh. I mean, that's the picture, right? They're ready to devour my flesh. And I see them and they run at me and they're kind of yanked back, pulled back as they try and get me. And if I walk this line and David sees this happen all the time around him is evildoers. These enemies are coming at him from every side. And so he's on this path and there's these adversaries that would eat him up and yank back and they stumble and they fall and it builds confidence in him it builds a sort of untouchability in his mind that god has done this before and he can do it again uh our family loves to watch andy griffith and isle of lucy and old shows some of you have commented on our little trip on our way to canada we stopped and saw some i love lucy memorabilia and things in jamestown but we were watching an old Andy Griffith episode, and this also came to my mind as I was thinking about this, where Barney uh, gives this guy a ticket down the road in, in the storefront, and the guy is not too happy about it. And he's a big guy, big dude. And so he says, you know what? Uh, I'll take this ticket, but the next time I see you out of uniform, it's not going to be good, right? And so Barney's really nervous. He won't go anywhere in Mayberry without his uniform on. And Andy starts to notice this. Why aren't you wearing your nice suit to the dance? What's going on? Well, you know, he makes all these excuses. Well, Andy puts two and two together, and as often Andy does, he's going to get him out of the mess he's in. So he goes to Barney's judo instructor. Barney had been taking judo to try and toughen himself up and be ready for this big guy. And he talks to the judo instructor, and he says, does Barney stand a chance? And the guy says, no chance. If you can do anything, stop that fight. And so Andy, in his wisdom, asks the guy, what size suit do you wear? The judo instructor happens to be the same size as Barney Fife. And so Andy arranges for the judo instructor to wear Barney's suit, walk down the road at the time, at a certain time when the storefront owner will come out. And the judo instructor takes care of the big guy, right? And the guy thinks it's Barney that did it. So later on, Andy then has Barney walk up the road in the same suit. You can do this. He gives him the pep talk. And Barney goes, and he's kind of shuffling his feet. He's got his head down. You know, you know, so-and-so, I'm not really too pleased about what you've done. And, uh, you know, I don't want to see it again. And the guy's like, no, no, I, I won't mess with you again. And Barney's like, you mean you won't? And all of a sudden, his countenance changes. And he becomes that kind of... Uh, you know, cocky and, and very arrogant, you know, well, I just uh, don't want to see it happening around Mayberry again. And uh, yeah, you remember this next time something happens around here. And his whole countenance changes because he knows his enemy is licked. He knows his enemy is afraid of him. This is the picture, I think, of exactly how David feels. As soon as you begin to understand, the enemy is not going to be able to get you you're confident. You have a confident faith. And so David says in verse three, in this, I will be confident. That is a good translation. It's the footnote translation of the English standard version, 
where it says, yet I will be confident, I think David is referring back to the confidence of verse 2. I will be confident in the fact that when evildoers came to eat at my flesh, they were the ones that stumbled and fell. And so I will be confident in this fact that God is my strength, my salvation, my refuge, and the evildoers cannot get to me. That's what it's like when the Lord is your confidence. But the foundation of David's confidence does not stop on God's past deliverances. There's one further stone of this foundation, if you will, of David's confident faith, and that is his communion with God. We see that in verses 4 through 6. David says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. This has been the essence of the song, the song entitled, One Thing. David says, one thing. Now, before we go any further in verses 4, 5, and 6, I want to ask you this question about David's singular focus. If God, the God of the universe, said, what one thing would you want? What one thing could I do for you? What would you ask of God? Would it be a a new car, a better house, more retirement security? Maybe it's not financial. Maybe you would long for God to help you with a conflict that you have in your home. Maybe you would want God to help you get out of a lie that you've told. But would your answer be like David's? Because there could be hundreds of things that we could think of. God, I can have one thing. You'll do it for me. One thing, Lord, David says, I'll take you. I want you. I want you and nothing else. I want to dwell in your presence. If your presence doesn't go with me, kind of like Moses, then I don't want to leave this place. I want to know you more. I want to observe your glorious beauty and splendor to meditate upon you. Be obedient to the first and greatest commandment. Do you remember what Jesus told Martha when she busied herself in the house when Jesus came to visit? He said in the New Living Translation gives us the one thing right here. It says, there is only one thing worth being concerned about, Martha. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. Mary wanted to sit at Jesus' feet. Communion with God is a mark of solid faith. Are you tracking how this builds confidence in our faith? When we commune with him, we are strengthened in our faith. Make use of, This is a little application here on this point for us as a church. Make use of the means of grace that God provides. Sit at his feet each Sunday. Soak up his word. Worship him in song and in praises. Receive from his table. Remember his sacrifice for you. Spend time in his word each day. Worship at his feet. Remember this one thing and do not neglect it. David knew that the glorious presence of God was there at the tabernacle as the Old Testament would have had it. And so he desired earnestly to meet with him because in God's presence, he would be protected, covered, and uplifted. 
like verse 5. And then once uplifted above his enemies, David would be able to sing and praise the Lord, as he says in verse 6. And so we conclude that the foundation of David's faith was his communion with God, the thwarting of past enemies, and the knowledge that the Lord was his light, his salvation, and his stronghold. This is the rehearsing of our faith, the recognizing of the foundation of a confident faith. And then, and only then, we move to verses 7 through 12, where we see an outworking of this confident faith that David has. Having fixed himself, as it were, to the Lord and to these truths, he secondly cries out to the Lord in a prayer of confidence. So confident faith cries out in prayer. We can see from verses 11 and 12 that there are present enemies who are falsely accusing David. They're breathing out, as David says, violent threats against him. The need is very real, very present, And so building on the foundation of his confidence, David cries aloud to God in prayer. He cries aloud. Now, as a side note, I found Charles Spurgeon's practical note on verse 7 very helpful. He simply says, The voice, our voices, may be profitable and profitably used when we pray in private. For though it is unnecessary, it's often helpful and it aids us in preventing distraction. Just a little tidbit from study that I wanted to bring to you today. When you pray privately, pray out loud. It will encourage you to not be distracted as you pray. And David does this. He says, to the Lord, I cry aloud. He's the God of the universe. He knows this, but he still cries aloud to him. And as he's praying, Notice how he draws upon the confidence of verses 1 through 6 that he's already established. He appeals to God's invitation to commune with him. In verse 8, he says, You've said of me, seek my face. And David says, Your face, O Lord, have I sought. You invited me to communion with you, and that has been my endeavor, to commune and to know you. That's exactly what I did, God. He says in verse 9, look, I know I am unworthy. Hide hide not your face from me because you could be angry. You could forsake me. But he says confidently, because you are the God of my salvation, because you are my light, because you've saved me, I can now turn to you. You are the one I can trust and you alone. Do you see that in verse 9? He says, don't cast me off because you're the God of my salvation. That's what he's already established in verse 1. So David, building on this confidence, says, I know I can turn to you because you are my God and you are the one who saved me and you're the only one that I can turn to sometimes, it seems, even when all earthly relationships fail me. And that's where he goes in verse 10, right? He says, oh, my father and mother forsake me, yet the Lord will take me in. And there's no reason to believe, there's no indication in the Bible that Jesse... David's father was some sort of unfit father, but it's kind of beside the point in verse 10. You see, the point, to paraphrase one reformer, is that however inclined by nature our earthly parents are to be to help their children, and that's a lot. I mean, I'm not going to point fingers, but there's a few mama bears in here, all right? Do right, you know what I mean, right? Like, our parents, we love our kids a lot. 
We want to help them so much. And this reformer says, however inclined we might be, even if that affection that parents have for their children was completely extinguished, God would fulfill the duty of both father and mother for his people, from which it follows that we severely undervalue the grace of God if our faith does not rise above our natural affections. That's because the laws of nature would be overturned a hundred times before God would ever fail one of his people. Let your faith rise above even natural affections and trust that God is your strength. He is one you can turn to. Listen, I understand that in a room like this, there are many of you who feel severe pain, hurt, rejection from your earthly parents. There are some cultures in which converting to Christianity causes family members to have a funeral for you like you're dead. Look, I know there are a lot of people. Some of, some of you, if you're feeling that today, you need to underline verse 10 of Psalm 27 and meditate on this. Even if father and mother, the strongest of natural earthly affections should fail, the Lord will take you in. He will be your help. He will be your strength. He will protect you. He will provide for you. He will hear you. He will teach you. And David prays based on this kind of confidence. You're my light. You're my salvation. You're my refuge when I can't turn to anyone else. You've told me to seek you, and that's what I've done. So, Lord, he says in verse 11 and 12, teach me. Teach me. Lead me in a way that doesn't give even the slightest smell of blood to my enemies because they're ready to pounce on me. They're ready to pounce on my hypocrisy. To any reason I would give them for them to call me a hypocrite, they would jump on it at my slightest failure. Isn't that the way it is in our world today? Don't you feel that as a Christian? Eyes all around you at your school, at your workplace, the world watching. They can't wait for you to claim one thing and live another. And so David says, Teach me. Lead me on a level path because of them. I don't want to let you down. I want them to see consistency. I don't want to be a hypocrite, God. If you're in a secular environment every day, which most of you are, pray a prayer like this. Lord, help me. Lead me. Make the path straight before me. It's hard enough, God. Cry out to him in this prayer. And then wait. Confident faith waits in expectation. It waits in expectation. You would be right to assume that this is found in the final two verses of this psalm, verses 13 and 14, but I would argue David has the expectation of answered prayer all the way back in verse 7. He says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. Answer me. Now, reflecting on that verse, verse 7, Charles Spurgeon said, quote, 
we may expect answers to prayer. We should not be at ease without answers to prayer any more than we should be unconcerned if we had written a letter to a friend upon important business and received no reply. I get convicted too when I preach. I just want you to hear this. Did that land? It landed on my heart. We should expect an answer and confident that he would reply, and we should be uneasy without an answer the same way we would be uneasy if we had written a letter about something important to somebody we know and never got a reply. David prays and he implores God, answer me, God. Do you pray with the kind of urgent expectation that the Lord will hear you and the Lord will answer you? It all begins with the confident faith of this prayer, which begins upon the foundation that God has heard your cry. God has graciously saved you. So you wait on God and his timing, but you do it expectantly. Even the waiting period actually strengthens you. The waiting period itself will serve as a strengthening of your faith. Some of you Bible scholars are recalling Isaiah 40, 31. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. It's biblical. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now, for some of you type A go-getter personalities, that's tough business. Wait for the Lord? Like, wait around? We got work to do. We got to defend our name. I got to set the record straight. We got to get things done here. You're the type of folks that would have been dying on the inside to be a part of the army that marched around Jericho for seven days. Joshua, look at me, Josh. You got to be kidding me. It's day three of us sitting here taking a walk. I don't need more steps on my Fitbit. I'm ready to tear down these walls and take some captives in the name of the Lord. Let's go. That's you. That's me, if I'm honest. Well, that silly little example comes home when we start thinking of our modern day times when we are waiting on God to move in a marriage. When we're waiting on God, standing beside a hospital bed, and we're waiting on God, wondering about a very uncertain future. Waiting is hard. But just never forget that God our Father will provide. He is our Father. It's His job to preserve us. He knows what the future holds. We can't even peer into what tomorrow holds. Tomorrow our world could change. We've learned these lessons, haven't we? Wait on the Lord like a child would wait for his parent. Again, Charles Spurgeon, Treasury of David. If you don't have it, Look it up. It's very helpful. He says, No little child ever thinks of providing for himself, nor does he dream of directing his own course of life. 
You can't get that little head to be thoughtful about tomorrow's food. You cannot force that little heart to be anxious about the next set of clothes they're going to wear. To all suggested doubt for that little child, his or her lips would reply, my father knows what I need, and I'm sure he'll give it to me. And such is the happy result of the life of a loving child, and so it should be with us. Some of us are a little too grown up in our faith. We need the faith, as Jesus said, like a child, humbly dependent and receiving and resting on his provision for us. Waiting on the Lord expectantly may require us to wait like a child, but being a courageous Christian certainly is not child's play. David concludes the psalm with a call for others to wait on the Lord. Be strong. Take courage, he says, and wait for the Lord. Again, biblical scholars would be reminded of the commission to Joshua from Moses. Moses summoned Joshua, Deuteronomy 31, verse 7, and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous. For you shall go with this people into the land the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. That was the confidence of Joshua as he faced Jericho. Paul says it in the New Testament to the church at Corinth. Be alert. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. The KJV, act like men. Let's be courageous Christians. Leonardtown Baptist, whatever difficulty you're facing, whether at work, at home, When you go back to school, let the word of God encourage you today. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take courage and wait for the Lord. Recognize the foundation of your faith. In that confidence, cry out to God in prayer and wait in expectation that he will answer. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way that you do provide for us. Forgive our presumptuous hearts to pretend to know what tomorrow holds. Help us to have a mindset that our Lord taught on that mountain of trusting that if you so clothe the lilies of the field, will you not clothe us whom you love? Which one of us, if uh, our child asks for bread, would give him a stone? Lord, you know what we have need of. And so the encouragement of our Lord in Matthew 6 was to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's exactly what David recounts as he says, you have said, seek my face. So Lord, I pray that across the room, the cry of believers here today that make up Leonardtown Baptist Church is, your face, Lord, do I seek. Help us to seek you, to seek your kingdom, to trust you, to lay it all at your feet when we face enemies, when we face opposition and hardship, difficulties, to be able to be patient, 
and wait for you to act. In the meantime, we ask for courage. Strengthen our hearts as we recall past deliverance. As we uh, rely upon our communion with you. But most importantly, as we remember all that you've already provided for us in Jesus Christ. Father, this, Lord, this psalm begins with a presumption. And Lord, it is the concern of my heart now as we turn in this service to a time of response. David says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Lord, you are my light and my salvation. For those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus, they can say, you are my light and my salvation. But Lord, if there's someone here today that cannot say that, then I know that there's an uneasiness and a lack of confidence as they face the trials of this fallen world. So Lord, even now, would you move and convict of sin and call to repentance and teach us your ways? Lord, would there be someone here that would put their faith and trust in you to seek you above all else and to find salvation in the only name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved? And that's the name in which I pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen.